Hello, and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture in order. This is the Academy Archives, and this week we're discussing Academy winners Mary Poppins and Julie Andrews. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's our producer, Kayla. Howdy. Hello. We are back. We're here, believe it or not. Yes, we had to take a little hiatus there for a week. Oh, thanks for sticking with us. It's been crazy around here. Yeah, we are been very, very busy. But you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a creative person, and I'm sure you can appreciate it. We've been running around, but we're doing fun stuff. Yeah. Zach is uh, working on a production of a... The Academy Award winning story, Hamlet. I mean, (laughs) what I'm doing has nothing to do with the Academy Awards. Yeah, but it's the only Shakespeare to win Best Picture. It has everything to do with the lamest Shakespeare. (gasps) Take that back. It's not the lamest Shakespeare. I mean, the one that won Best Picture truly is one of the lamest Shakespeare's. That version, maybe. Uh, One funny thing about it, since I don't like the Laurence Olivier Hamlet is that the director is very certain to say, this is going to be nothing like the Laurence Olivier version. I don't know what he was thinking. Thank goodness. Well, I'm glad that you're working on that one then. (laughs) Yeah. Anywho. Anywho. It's been wild. But we're back. And we're uh, back in the groove. And we have a really fun episode today. Yeah. I'm super excited. I'm excited to hear your stuff. But I'm also excited to tell you my stuff. But I've seen, you know, I've seen... Uh, Mary Poppins, and I've seen the the other one, Saving Mary Poppins. <laughs> what? Mary Poppins Returns? Yeah, no, 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 no. The, the one about Walt Disney. Oh, Saving Mr. Banks? Saving Mr. Banks. I was going to say Saving Private Ryan. That's not right, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Same actor. Um, Who? Tom Hanks. Oh, Tom Hanks. Okay, okay. What I meant to say was, yeah, I'm very excited because... I have seen Mary Poppins and I've seen Saving Mr. Banks, so I feel like I know a decent amount of the behind the scenes stuff, so I want to hear even more deep cuts. Apparently, though, the story was not adapted totally truthfully from the novel, but also apparently the Saving Mr. Banks movie was not adapted totally truthfully from the truth. Ah, uh, well, shocking. That's uh, not that surprising. Yeah. <laughs> But we will get into all of the, I was going to say gory details, but no gore here. There's literally no gore in anything we're going to talk about. All of the magical details. All of the bright, sunny details. (laughs) But first, we will bring you some interesting facts. Yeah, some Hollywood fun facts. Yeah, to start off our Academy Archives. My interesting fact this week is also from a 1964 film. Okay. Goldfinger. Oh! Yep. Uh huh. Um, not only is this the first James Bond film to be nominated for an Academy Award and win an Academy Award, mm-hmm. of course, many more will, um, but it is the first film in film history to introduce a GPS like device. Oh, okay. Huh. Um, so they use this, it's mounted in a car, and they're tracking the villain with it. Um, they explain it in the movie as like a magnetic homing device, and it has a oh. range of 150 <laughs> miles. Pretty good. So as long as the villain is within 150 miles, they can track him. They were very tech savvy. But it's the first film ever to have some sort of a GPS device. Cool. Very cool. I mean, it makes sense. It'd be like a Bond spy movie. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Pretty fun. 
My uh, fun fact for you today comes from uh, my deep dives into Julie Andrews. Huh. So I wanted to share a fun fact, which we will probably get to as we get to The Sound of Music, because mm. we are going to talk about that eventually. So this is about the making of that film, but it's specific because Literally I just, our next episode. I know. I'm very excited. But honestly, it just was too funny. I wanted to share it now. So um, as you probably know, the most iconic scene in the film is, you know, you see the beautiful hills and Julie Andrews does a little twirl and she runs up and she sings, the hills are alive with the sound of music. But the making of this was a very difficult experience for her because the jet engine helicopter kept knocking her over with the force of the wind as Hmm. it like got really close to her in order to film that scene. And so they did about 10 takes and most of them she ended up getting knocked down by the helicopter as she was trying to sing this. Oh boy. (laughs) So she was doing like a lip sync to the music, you know. And so as she would like approach the helicopter, it was just too strong, too powerful, and it would knock her right to the ground. So it was a very difficult scene to be made. Hmm. I just thought that was funny. And, uh, you know, it's such a beautiful, peaceful, serene scene. And behind the scenes, quite a different story. Hmm. Poor Julie. Yeah, poor Julie. (laughs) She's such a good attitude about everything. So, (laughs) Well, shall we get to Mary Poppins? Yeah, let's talk about it. I will uh, give a little disclaimer here. (laughs) Kristen wants to let you all know that she is a dreadful Scrooge and has no cheer in her heart. Hey now. Hey, hey, hey. Let's back it up here. I would like to say... Her middle name is Grinch (laughs) and her last name is Scrooge. She hates all things happy and fun. False. Completely false. Completely false. What I'd like to say is that I really don't like Mary Poppins. And I know that for those of you who know me or who've listened to me talk about things, that seems contrary to my general disposition. The reason is it scared me to death as a kid. And I felt like there were a lot of contradictions in the movie that she was very strict, but they wanted her to be cheerful. And I couldn't comprehend how she could be both at the same time and like things like that. I also have a very strong aversion to chaos in kids movies like this so like when they're jumping into other animated worlds and things like that i couldn't reconcile it in my brain and so i didn't like it and it was very stressful to me as a child as i I said still feel the same way she hates fun okay she is mr banks that's not true all she wants to do (laughs) is sit in her stuffy office where there's no fun no color and just count her pennies listen i thought that um Bert was the best character and then she was so dismissive of him and I didn't understand why because he was the only nice character in the movie. He's not she's not dismissive. They're great friends. I think that you have a very warped view of this and that if you watched it now you would come around I and see that it is great. The humor was very British or something and I just didn't comprehend it as a kid. You also would not think that anymore if you watched it now. That's how I feel, so that's how we're going into it. All right. Tell us about Mary Poppins. So a little recap. George Banks and his wife need a new nanny for their kids, Jane and Michael. Mary Poppins shows up and takes the job. She and the children embark on a new and magical relationship, going on adventures accompanied by Bert, a local street artist and musician, and chimney sweep. They bring their newfound joy to their father, showing him his stuffy banker attitude towards his children has not been beneficial in their upbringing. Once they've all learned their lessons, Mary Poppins says her job has been completed and she flies away as mysteriously as she came, leaving everyone better in the end. 
So the stories of Mary Poppins first originated with author P.L. Travers. Um, She said she contrived of a character named M. Poppins and would tell stories about her when she was young to her sisters. Eventually, she ended up writing a short story that was published in 1926 called Mary Poppins and the Matchmen that introduced both Mary Poppins and Bert, a local chimney sweep. Cute. Eventually, she published her first Mary Poppins novel in 1934, and by 1938, the novel had made its way to Walt Disney, and his daughters really loved it. Oh, that's cute. Um, he was insistent on making it into a movie and begged Travers for nearly 20 years for the rights to produce the film. Um, but she just kept refusing and refusing. Um, she was not swayed by money. And she just felt like the Hollywood machine had done other novels very Um, poorly. Yeah, yeah. And she felt like they were only going to do her an injustice for some (laughs) reason. Finally, she relented when Walt was on a trip to London to check up on a film that he was producing there. And he finally met her in person and was able to convince her. She said of the meeting that he was like a, quote, friendly, charming uncle who took from his pocket a gold pocket watch and dangled it enticingly before your eyes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that kind of sounds like an apt description of uh, Walt Disney. Yeah. The deal they ended up working out gave Travers approval rights of the script and a lot of the things of the movie um, and allowed her to be involved in a bunch of the decision making, but still gave Walt final approval on everything. Mm-hmm. He was the movie person after all, and she was not. She had like all these approval rights. She pretty much disapproved of everything in the film. Like she did not like the film at all. Weird. Well, then why did she approve it? I don't really know. And like, it's hard to like reconcile the two things where like she didn't really like it, but it still got made. Yeah. Because she like did have approval rights uh-huh. So, right. so she could have stopped it if she didn't like it. So why didn't she stop it if she didn't like it? I don't it? know. I guess she didn't dislike it enough to stop it. But yeah. I don't know. She also is just a very strange person. I've seen the movie. What movie? Saving Mr. Oh. Banks. <laughs> <laughs> don't think of that as a documentary. <laughs> but she's just a very like the one thing that everybody says about her is that the word to describe her most is contradictory. Oh, interesting. Just okay. as a person, she was just so contradictory hmm. in everything that she did for That's some reason. difficult. Yeah. yeah. One of the main things was that she was worried that Mary Poppins had been made too nice in the film. Hmm. Well, I felt the opposite as a child. So. She felt like in the book and as a character, she was supposed to be really mean. Oh, interesting. Which is strange. I've never read the books, so I don't know what she's like in the books. So that was one of the things she said. But uh-huh. then there's audio recordings of their meetings. Oh. Where like they would record the meetings right. so yeah. that they could have record of things of they course. talked about. Yeah. And so there are audio recordings that people can listen to of her in the meetings with the Sherman Brothers and with Walt Disney and other producers like the head animator and whatever, all talking about it. And But one of the things that she specifically says on those recordings is that she wants... Mary Poppins to be very nice and sweet like she is in the book. What? But one of the things she held to after the film was made is that she wasn't mean enough. Interesting. It's hard to know what she really thought. Also, she did not like the animated sequences. And she same girl, same. really didn't like the music. 
Oh, well, that's sad because the music's great. Yeah. She also at times said that she didn't think Julie Andrews was good. But what? then like later in her life, she thought that Julie Andrews was like the only good part of the film. Okay. So I don't know. It's very difficult to understand what, she, like I said, yeah. what she really thought of it. Um, Walt kept pushing forward despite her demands. Uh, he was determined just to make this film. And it's probably the film that most people say he poured the most of himself into. Mm. This and The Jungle Book. I was going to say, what about The Jungle Book? Yeah. And of course, Snow White. Oh, sure. Um, but this one in particular, he sort of pulled out all the stops and used like literally every single thing he had ever done in any other film, all for this one film. Hmm. The Sherman brothers were only a couple years into their working relationship with Disney at the time. Yeah, we just talked about them. Yeah, um, they did all the songwriting for the musical, of course. They also helped work on the plot and the script and basically... I mean, they were almost producers of the film yeah. without the title producer. Travers finally came to Hollywood to check up on the pre-production after the Sherman Brothers and Walt had been working on it for nearly two years. Oh, my. And the entire musical, like all the songs, had already been written. Um, the Sherman Brothers hadn't been aware up to that point that Disney only had an option on it that he hadn't obtained like the full rights to do it. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So they had been working for two years on this thing that they thought was a sure thing. Oh no. (laughs) And it could have all fallen apart then when she came to like hear everything. And this is when the recordings of their conversations was when she finally came. After their meetings, Walt then gave her 30 days to think it over. Um, and give like a final Mm -hmm. you can do it or not do it (laughs) and then she came back and said that they could do it Mm. several big names were considered for the title role including mary martin of course um angela lansbury and even betty davis betty davis yeah to play mary poppins oh my gosh that's also interesting because um she goes up against angela lansbury a couple times in her career betty davis no 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 oh julie andrews julie andrews yeah i mean she's always going up against mary martin and angela lansbury yeah that's interesting yeah it's funny how the three of them are considered like the same type at this point yeah because i think of them very differently considering what they you know book yeah So Walt and the Sherman brothers ended up seeing Julie Andrews on the Ed Sullivan show. This was kind of like Mm -hmm. her first big like appearance for more than just the Broadway community. Um, She was singing a duet from Camelot with Richard Burton that they were starring in on Broadway. Um, Walt immediately went to New York to watch her in the show and (laughs) loved her. He then went backstage to her dressing room to try to convince her to audition and started acting out the part for her (laughs) and the whole story of the film to convince her that it was going to be a good film. And this is not the first time that he has done a one-man show of a movie he's trying to get made. (laughs) Yeah. She talks about this in an interview she did in the 70s where she just thought it was so funny and she just kept saying the word demonstrative and how like she just thought that he would be so fun to work with because he was so demonstrative and just like acting out the whole film basically so she was convinced that she did have to audition for it (laughs) and so she did and then by the time that she was going to be cast and they wanted to start filming she ended up being three months pregnant yes yeah, um, I read that. So she was really worried that Walt was going to replace her when she told him. But then he decided that they could just postpone the production a little longer. 
so that she could just give birth before they started filming, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> it's astounding. I was reading about that situation and I couldn't believe that that happened. Well, um, and I think he was just such a family person and he was so close with his daughters yeah. too that, I don't know, he probably just felt like it was a no-brainer. Yeah. Well, and as we've talked about with some of his films that we've talked about, specifically like his treatment of Snow White and his treatment of mothers and that kind of thing, I think he has a soft spot mm-hmm. for that kind of motherhood, womanhood, you know, that kind of thing. Well, and we talked about this bit a little bit before, but luckily for Julie Andrews and for Walt Disney, Jack Warner didn't want to <laughs> cast Julie Andrews in My Fair Lady because, of course, they ended up filming at the exact same time. Ah. Once it got delayed, yeah, they were oh, then filming simultaneously. Yeah. Um, Walt really tried to get Cary Grant to do a screen test for Bert. Um, but he, of course, is on the verge of retirement at this yeah, point. Yeah, he's getting old and tired. Yeah, he doesn't really want to do films anymore. He yeah. only has a couple left that he ends up doing before he retires. Um, Walt ended up bringing in Dick Van Dyke to do a screen test. Um, he was a fan of his new uh, brand new TV show, of course. <laughs> and as soon as he met him in person, he instantly like almost offered him the role. I mean... Even just uh, having seen Mary Poppins, it feels like Dick Van Dyke is a Walt Disney type. Yeah. Well, and one of the reasons he brought him in is because he had done an interview and in one of the newspapers, the New York Times or something, and he was saying how he felt like pictures then in the early 60s were becoming like bad or like naughty or dirty. Hmm. And Walt was really worried about that, too. He was uh-huh. worried with the code ending and with everything that was changing that yeah. people wouldn't like family movies anymore Aww. and that the whole Disney brand would go under because of that. Interesting. Um, and so yeah. when he read that, then he was like, oh, I should audition him because he's <laughs> just like me. <laughs> he has the same values. <laughs> That's funny. I can totally see that happening. Yeah. Of course, all of that would not come true. I mean, obviously people still are enamored by Disney movies. <laughs> There's still a place for them. Yeah. Even in the world of all our dirty pictures now. Mm, yeah, true that. But it was a huge risk that he made casting these two actors because yeah, Dick Van Dyke huge. Yeah. had only been in one other film up to this wow. point and Julie Andrews had not been in a film yet. Yeah. That's crazy. That's and of crazy. course, they both were extremely popular on Broadway already. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just so niche. And like, yeah, I mean, at this point, Julie Andrews has done uh, the television movie version of Cinderella, right. the Rodgers and Hammerstein. And she is popular as a singer and a musical theater actress, like truly, truly popular, mm-hmm. as popular as it gets. But she's not as popular as like Audrey Hepburn no. or Betty Davis yeah. or, you know. Elizabeth Taylor. Mary Martin. Yeah. And even him, Dick Van Dyke, we think of him as so ubiquitous now. Right. And so popular. I mean, he's one of the most popular male comedic actors in history at this point. But he didn't know his show was going to last as long as it lasted. Yeah. I mean, it was still really new when he got cast in this. Yeah. And you have to imagine that a lot of the popularity of his TV show was because of his popularity in Mary Poppins also. Like, they feed on one another. Well, and he just didn't have the draw in film. Like, he did some, like, radio stuff. He Mm. was a radio personality. He was a Broadway personality. But that doesn't always mean that it, like, translates. Totally. Yeah. So, pretty interesting that he felt like he could make it work. And he did. 
Um, another actress Walt was set on for the film was Glennis Johns to play Mrs. Banks. Um, she, of course, <laughs> my favorite character is in the whole incredible movie. Incredible in the movie. Um, when her agent sent her to this meeting, she thought that she was meeting to play Mary Poppins. Though. Oh no! But oh, Julie no. Andrews had already been cast, and so they told her that, and they were like, "No, we want you to play Mrs. Banks, and it's a great role." And she was like, "Well." Maybe I could be persuaded if I have my own number in the film. Aha. Uh-huh. And Walt was <gasps> That's like how it happened. Well, Walt said, Oh, well, you're in luck because they literally just finished writing your number and it's <gasps> really great. And we'll send it to you. Oh my gosh. And she was like, Oh, okay, great. And then literally she walks out the door and he's like, You guys have to write her a number right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh no. And so they were like, okay, what do we do? So is this why the number is so manic? It's like... Well, they had a few that had already gotten scrapped. And so they picked one that was called like practically perfect uh-huh. in every way or something. Like the phrase that Mary Poppins used. Mm. And they took the like musical elements of it and sort of put together a quick song. And then by the time she got back to her hotel, oh my. the Chateau Marmont, they were calling her and played her like a snippet of it (laughs) that they had written. And then she was like, oh, that sounds lovely. And she was like, I'll do it. (laughs) And then they like basically finished writing the number after that. I love it. I love that. I would also like to say that as a child... When I did watch this movie, she was my favorite character in the whole movie. I mean, and she I is like, very fun. Why do they bring in Mary Poppins? She's the great character in it. Well, and her character, watching it as an adult, is even so much funnier, too. And it had to be on purpose that, like, she was all for women's rights and she didn't have a name also. Oh, my gosh. Of course. Like, of course. <laughs> it feels, like, so tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. And then also just, like, the fact that... She is so for women's rights, but she will literally do anything that her husband tells her to do. Like, she's so devoted to him. Yeah. But also, she's like, I have to get my new dress for the Women's March. Oh, (laughs) it's so cute, though. I love it. I love it. So fun. The other people who were very fun for everyone to work with were the kids in the film. Matthew Garber, who played Michael, and Karen Dotris, who played Jane um matthew garber who played michael he was afraid of heights um and they did so much work like in the air in this film oh my gosh so after every take that he was ever on a wire or up in the air someone on set would give him a dime (laughs) and so (laughs) they said that he ended up making like almost double what he was supposed to make for the film because he was given so many dimes on sets for like every single take that he was in the air yes that sounds dramatic (laughs) that is insane i should start doing that because they weren't like keeping track of it and like people were just just a random crew member would just be like here have a dime for that take what what if you were like I'm really scared of this thing, so I just need a dime. Every no, time I mean I do it. it wasn't his idea that he get a dime. It was just like, what can we do to like make him feel make better. him feel better? Wow, yeah. his parents must have been so happy. Yeah, who knows? Speaking of the flying, uh, Walt helped them all come up with new techniques for all the flying and floating to trick the audience because he was worried that the audience would know how all of it was done. 
and mm. thought that that would take away from the magic. Um, he didn't want to use wires the entire time. Also because he felt like you could tell when they were using yeah, wires. sure. So especially in the laughing scene, he was the one who devised basically all of the special effects tricks hmm. for that scene. Oh. Um, he basically came up with the concept and they did the set in four ways for that scene. So they did the full set just as normal. And then they did the set on its side. They also did the set upside down. And then they did a fourth version of the set that was much shorter and the roof was, or like the ceiling, was way closer to the floor. Hmm. That scared the crap out of me. I hated that Oh, it's like the best scene in the film. I was so scared of it. And then Mary Poppins is like, you know, not happy that they're wasting all this time. And I was like, why did none of these kids listen to Mary Poppins? She tells them to do something. They should do it. And that's why I thought she was too strict. Clearly you didn't learn your lessons from the film. Anyways, they did all that. Okay. So they could shoot everything from multiple angles. And they also, it allowed them not to use wires the whole time. Yeah. So they used wires some of the time. They used teeter totters. They also had the actors just sitting with Uh, like the chairs off mm -hmm. screen. This allowed them to like walk on the walls and the ceiling. Oh, that's cool. At different times. So then they would just flip it and it looked like they were upside down floating in the air. And basically, then it allowed for the audience not to track when they were on wires or when they right, weren't. Right, yeah. So then it was like, oh, how do they do that? What? It's so magical. It's magic. <sighs> and a lot of those techniques and others that were invented for the film for the flying parts are still all used today, huh. which is pretty interesting, especially the like rotating sets and stuff. Right, yeah, that's cool. The other major piece of this puzzle, of course, is the animated elements. Um, Disney and Ub Iwerks had invented the use of live action animation together for their Alice series, like when they first right. began the company. Um, and they finally perfected it in Mary Poppins, uh-huh. mostly with the new sodium vapor process that they decided to use for this one that Ub Iwerks invented instead of the blue screen process, which was currently being used and is primarily used today blue or green screen um so this meant that they basically just lit the scene with these sodium vapor lights um that would cast this hue and they would film the scene either in a white or a black room and the hue of the light then is what allowed them to do the proper matting to like cut the Mm -hmm. actors out of the background And it just made it way more seamless than any other Hmm. film had been up to that point. The actors were really blown away when they finally saw the animated sequences because, like they do today, they acted it all first and then it was all animated around them. Mm. Um, And so Frank Thomas was the lead animator for the sequences. And he is, this was kind of considered like his best work, especially Mm. the penguin scene, because Dick Van Dyke did this whole dance of course and he's (laughs) dancing with the penguins and they were so worried that he was dancing around too fast and like frank thomas basically said like he's going to be squashing all the penguins like where am i going to draw them (laughs) and so it took him some time but then he finally thought through the whole sequence Hmm. and then was able to fit the penguins in all these random places (laughs) to make it really fun Uh and so then Dick Van Dyke was just like, couldn't believe it. He thought it was just so amazing (laughs) that he was dancing with penguins. Oh, that's cute. (laughs) Because like nothing like this had ever really been done to this scale. 
Wow. And there were other animated and live action films that were done by Disney. Right. But nothing where they could really interact fully like this one. Yeah, that's cool. Um, the other special effects in the film, of course, are the practical effects. And for this, Walt also pulled out all the stops <laughs> of like everything he had ever tried for like a practical effect. He also did in this film. Two of the fun ones are when Julie Andrews is pouring the medicine. So she pours it in Michael's spoon and it's one color and then she pours it in Jane's spoon and it's another color. Mm. And so it's a, just a practical effect that you can do with like a trick bottle. And the kids did not know that this was going to happen. Aww. And so Karen Dotris, who plays Jane, she like shrieks in the take that's in the film. And that was the first <laughs> one that they did. And that was like her genuinely responding to it because she was so surprised that like it was a different color. <laughs> The other scene where they basically only shot one take and then used it was the carpet bag scene oh. where they're just pulling yeah. everything. Mm-hmm. The kids did not know how they were doing how it. they were doing it or that like a huge like coat rack was going to come out of the <gasps> yeah. plants, oh. lamps. Like <laughs> they were just like so surprised. They were only told to just react to what was happening. And then, of course, like they couldn't help themselves because it was just like, <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> Um, and for all of that, of course, uh, the film would go on to win uh, the Academy Award for Best of Visual Effects. Yeah. Very new award, too. Yeah. And great for them that it had just come about because, yes. like, this is a film that is well-deserved to win that. Definitely. Definitely. So all in all, it was nominated for 13 awards, which is crazy, the most ever for a Disney film. Mm-hmm. Um It was also the highest grossing film of the year, Mm. and it was Disney's highest grossing film, like by numerical value up to this point. Nice. With inflation, Snow White, of course, has still made more money, Uh but numerical value, this is the highest grossing film up to this point for Disney. So, of course, nominated for 13 awards, it won five, and I'll just go through those real quick. Uh, Best Actress, of course, goes to Julie Andrews. Best Film Editing goes to Cotton Warburton. Best Music Score, Substantially Original, <laughs> goes to the Sherman Brothers. Best Song for Chim Chim Cheree goes to the Sherman Brothers. Highly deserved. And Best Special Visual Effects. So it it's so interesting because it's like Disney's most critically acclaimed work up to this point. Yeah. And a lot of people, I was watching some like behind the scenes and documentaries about this and stuff, and people just constantly were saying that it's like it is his best work that he did well, while he was alive yeah it seems to me like you know he pours everything into snow white and of course he has a lot of great pictures along the way mm-hmm. but it seems like this is the magnum opus of mm-hmm. all the work that he did from starting his company well and it was like also one of the things he wanted to make the most and the longest oh, like yeah. he wanted to make it for like 20 years yeah and so all of that time, probably imagining what the movie could be, and mm-hmm. then finally like getting to put everything he ever thought of into it. So, yeah, that's really great. Yeah, Very super exciting. fun film. Very deserving of all the awards it won <laughs> and was nominated for. And that brings us to hearing more about Julie Andrews. Yeah. The star of the show. It's true. It's true. Yeah. So today I'm talking about uh, Best Actress winner. Julie Andrews, Dame Julie Andrews, I should say. I'm very excited to talk to you about her because I had absolutely the best time 
learning about her. If you ever need to have a bright spot in your day, just watch a Julie Andrews interview. It'll just make you feel so much better about the world and yourself. And she's so honest and sweet. I just, uh, I couldn't be more impressed with her as a person. Yeah, she's so fun. Yeah. And she has starred in two of the most important films in my entire life. Do you know what they are? Mary Poppins? No. False. (laughs) Come on. I mean, Princess Diaries 1 Uh and Princess Diaries 2. Lumping them together (laughs) and one other film that you know I love. Thoroughly Modern Millie? No, babe, babe. Shrek 2? No, babe. I know what it is. I'm just trying to get your goat. (laughs) Eloise at Christmas time. Yes, one of the greatest films that has ever crossed (laughs) the American screen. Oh, such a good movie, and she's amazing in it. That I mean, she's also great in all of those other ones that I mentioned. All right. (laughs) Well, I'm talking about her today, of course, because she won the Academy Award for Best Actress for Mary Poppins. Yeah. She's also won two primetime Emmys three Grammys, an honorary Golden Lion from the Venice Film Festival. She was made a Disney legend in 1991 and also a dame for her contributions to the arts in 2000, along with plenty, plenty of other accolades and awards and, you know, honorary things. Mm -hmm. Um, She, of course, is known for her voice, for her light, sunny, clear voice. It's just so specific. Um, And so that is like what the bulk of her career is built on. Um, musically, she always preferred to sing music that was, this is from her, quote, bright and sunny. And she always chose to avoid singing songs that were sad or written in a minor key for fear of losing her voice in, quote, a mess of emotion. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Which is just a funny thing. And as I was thinking about it, like it's mostly true of a lot of the music I know about her. So. But it seems funny, like, would she decline a role if it was going to be? I'm sure she wouldn't. But I'm sure that, like, when it, because she did so many reviews and concerts and tours and things like that, I'm sure she was focused on picking the songs that suited her voice. Mm -hmm. And she felt like that was what suited her more. The thing that I thought was really beautiful, and I saw a couple different articles about this, is she had a very turbulent childhood. Mm, And she, as an adult, played two of the most beloved, perfect nannies. Um, and that is like kind of the pride of her career is that she got to play Mary Poppins and then also Nanny and Eloise, um, both of who were wonderful, perfect caretakers. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was something that was really important to her. Um, she was happily married for 41 years to her second husband. She is currently, because she is still alive, thank God, uh, she's currently the mother to three children, stepmother to two, grandmother to nine, and great-grandmother to three. Oh, wow. And she's very, very closely connected to her family. They're very important to her. And as I was looking through her interviews, her guiltiest pleasure is a bowl of cornflakes in the middle of the night. Hmm. <laughs> so that's the overview. Getting into her life and her career and such, um, she's born October 1st, 1935 in Surrey, England. Um, her mother was Barbara Ward Wells. Her father was Ted Wells. But she did find out later in life that he was not actually her biological father. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, Her uh, mother briefly had an affair with a close family friend. She didn't find out about this until 1950. Um, So she didn't find out until she was about 15. um, But it was kind of something that she kept to herself. Um, And it wasn't publicly known until her 2008 autobiography, which 
she disclosed some of that information, hmm. but she just didn't consider him truly her father um, because she was very close with Ted Wells, her father. She actually met him before she knew that this guy was her uh, biological father. And she oh, said about weird. it, she had gone and uh, performed at a music house. And she said, quote, after I saw the, ha- the owner of the house approached me. He was tall and handsome, and I recognized him as a man who'd come round uh, to visit our family home once or twice in earlier years. That evening, the man came and sat on the couch next to me. I remember feeling an electricity between us that I couldn't explain. Hmm. And so that was the only time she really got to meet him before she knew that that was her biological father. But she didn't consider him to be a father figure at all. Uh, Ted Wells was very involved in her life. She said about him, quote, he was the one who took me on nature walks to swimming baths and down to the seaside. Just the memory of him sitting and reading to me was enough to make me love listening to books and the spoken and the written word, Hmm. Uh, which is really sweet. It's where a lot of her uh, inspiration came from. Uh, When World War II happened, uh, Ted Wells and Barbara went separate ways. uh, They got divorced, and Barbara remarried a man named Ted Andrews instead of Ted Wells. (laughs) During World War II, uh, Julie Andrews' father assisted uh, with the child evacuation to Surrey during the Blitz. Um, So he was very involved in that, while her mother and Ted Andrews uh, were involved in entertaining the troops as part of the Entertainment's National Service Association. Hmm. She lived with her father, Ted Wells, for a bit during this time in Surrey, um, but he kind of realized what a great talent she was during this and thought that she would do a lot better with her mother and stepfather, who were both active in the arts and working in the arts. Mm -hmm. Um, So she ended up moving in with her mother and stepfather, but she really really didn't like it and it ended up being a very dark time in her life um Hmm. they lived in the slums of london or at least what she referred to as the slums they were very very poor and constantly struggling she was working with them a lot so she was very exhausted um and she had a bad relationship with ted andrews she wanted to call him uncle ted her mother insisted that she call him pop but she didn't want to because she really didn't like him. He became an alcoholic and violent. And two times while he was drunk, he uh, tried to get into bed with her, which resulted in her personally buying a lock to put on her door as a like young, young, young person, hmm. um, which was obviously not fair to her. But, you know, it didn't last forever. Eventually, her parents, uh, her mother and stepfather, moved up in the entertainment world. Uh, They began to make more and more money. And finally, they were able to afford to move back to Ted Andrews' hometown of Hersham, where he bought the house that his mother had served as a maiden during his childhood. Oh, wow. And that became their family home. And that's where she considers, like, her hometown to be. Hmm. Um, And at this point, he was able to start her in lessons and pay for them, Hmm. which was a game changer for her. They obviously knew she was very talented. And during this time, she was going to nightclubs with them. She was performing a lot. um, And she was a hit. But, you know, she was a child. So she finally began lessons at the independent art school, uh, Cone Ritman School, which is now known as Arts Ed in London. And she also started with concert soprano and voice instructor, Madame Lillian Stiles Allen, who is one of the most formative people in Julie Andrews' life. Hmm. Um, She said, quote, she had an enormous influence on me. She was my third mother. Um, And just like loved her and credits her for being the one who discovered and cultivated her voice and her style. In uh, Lillian Style Allen's memoir, she talks a lot about Julie Andrews, of course, uh, course. because it's titled My Star Pupil. Ah. (laughs) And about Julie in, in her memoir, she writes, quote, 
The range, accuracy, and tone of Julie's voice amazed me. She had possessed the rare gift of absolute pitch. Hmm. Um, Julie Andrews says that she doesn't have perfect pitch, but uh, here we are at this impasse, so possible. Uh, Julie Andrews also says about uh, her voice teacher, quote, Madame was sure that I could do Mozart and Rossini, but to be honest, I never was. I had a very pure, white, thin voice, a four octave range that dogs would come for miles around to hear. Because My. she had a very high voice, but it was very yeah. crisp, very clear, and she would consider it to be very thin. It was the kind of voice where she didn't feel like she could sing opera because of the heaviness of the material and because of the power that was required to sing it. But she did feel very well suited to sing musical theater, even at a very young age. Mm -hmm. um, she was taken by her parents to be examined by a throat specialist because they were so like in awe of her voice and wanted to like know how to care for it. And the doctor concluded that as a teenager, she had an adult larynx. Huh. Which that's I don't weird. know what that means, but yeah. that's what they said. <laughs> Which I, I think just means that her voice was more fully developed, the muscles were strong, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so in the 40s, she began to sing and perform with her parents. Um, it got to the point where they would have her sleep during the afternoon so that she could stay up and perform late, late, late into the night. And she finally had her career breakthrough when her stepfather introduced her to managing director Val Parnell who uh, was in charge of Moss Empires, which controlled prominent performance venues in London. Hmm. Um, so at age 12, she made her professional solo debut at the London Hippodrome, singing a very difficult aria titled Jesus Titania from Mignon as a part of a musical review called Starlight Roof. And this was in 1947. Hmm. And she was a smashing hit. And she ended up playing at the Hippodrome for about a year after that because oh, wow. people just loved her and were coming to see her. Uh, on November 1st, 1948, at age 13, she became the youngest solo performer to ever be seen in a royal variety performance before King George VI and the future Queen Elizabeth at the London Palladium. And after this, of course, she began to become more popular. So she was doing a lot of radio work and then also some stage work uh, throughout the early 50s in England. Hmm. Um, on September 30th, 1954, on the eve of her 19th birthday, which was October 1st, she made her Broadway debut Yay. as Polly Brown in the musical The Boyfriend, which started in London and finally moved to Broadway. It's so funny to think of her. I mean, I know that she's British, but like... I, it's so hard for me to picture her growing up in England. Like, I don't know. I just don't think of her that way because she's so like, I don't know, in American films. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. It just seems funny to me. Um, so when she wanted to be a part of the show, she was actually recommended to the director of the show, Vita Hope, for the part by the actress Hattie uh, Jacques, who she regarded as a catalyst for her career because she was able to get her her very first Broadway performance and production. Hmm. Um, at the time, she was super anxious about moving to New York. Um, she, at this point, became the breadwinner for her family, and she was also the caretaker as like for her different family members. And she really wasn't sure if she should, you know, move from England to the USA. Um, but her father really, really encouraged her. And she decided that it was worth uh, going for, which thank goodness for Ted Wells, because otherwise we wouldn't have Julie Andrew. <laughs> the boyfriend became a hit and she received tons of critical praise. Um, the critics called her the standout of the show. And it was her iconic moment that kind of solidified her as the one to watch. Um, so in 1955, 
uh, she signed on to appear with Bing Crosby in the television film High Tour. Uh, it filmed in November of 1955 in Los Angeles, and it was her very first screen project, which she was very daunted by. Hmm. She was very scared. It felt very different from the stage, but she was able to do it, and it was her first appearance on the screen. Um, so after about a one-year run of The Boyfriend, she was approached uh, to audition for Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe for the role of Eliza Doolittle in their upcoming musical, My Fair Lady. Yeah. She thought it was amazing. She loved the role. She thought it was a perfect fit. And she was offered the part by Richard Rogers during only her third reading of it. Hmm. She was just kind of clearly the obvious choice for it. Uh, during rehearsals, director Moss Hart spent 48 consecutive hours solely with her, uh, where they, quote, hammered through each scene. And she said about this time that, quote, the good man stripped her feelings bare, molded, needed, and helped her become the character of Eliza and made her a part of her soul. Um, she refers to this as the best acting lessons she ever received and that he allowed her to cement the role with her own touches and flourishes and made it so that she felt that she could continue to work on the role and grow the character throughout her entire run. She was part of the show for two years, mm -hmm. and she felt that she evolved as a character over those two years, which is hmm. pretty impressive because yeah. a lot of people just put it in autopilot. And so he taught her how to stay active in a role like that. Mm -hmm. um, so on March 15th of 1956, My Fair Lady opened on Broadway at the Mark Hellinger Theater, it was a huge, huge success with audience and critics. Um, both of them, you know, loved it. The normal people and the critical people. <laughs> but she uh, realized that uh, after her opening night, she would need to tone down her Cockney accent because the Americans could not understand her. Mm. But what's funny is that when she went back to England at the West End to play this a year later... She had to reverse that and make her Cockney accent way heavier because mm. they did not believe that she was as gutter as she was supposed to be because she sounded too pretty. Mm -hmm. So just kind of a funny thing. Um, she considers this to be the greatest learning period of her life. And uh, of course, she is uh, renowned for her ability to create this role. And uh, then, of course, we've talked about the movie and her not getting cast in it. Sad. Yes. So shortly after this... Um, they were so impressed with her talent uh, in My Fair Lady that she was asked to be featured in the Rodgers and Hammerstein television musical of Cinderella, which was written especially for her because they loved her performance. Yay. And so this is like the one that you think of today, yeah. of course. Um, it was actually, it's funny that it appeared on the television first and then became a musical after the fact mm -hmm. because, you know, you think of like, Rodgers and Hammerstein, and it's like Broadway musicals, of course. But uh, this was the TV is booming, so yeah. they gotta bring everybody there. <laughs> yes, mm -hmm. and of course, this is the one that Brandy's in later, so it's a great oh, musical. Boy. You know, we we love Cinderella. It was broadcast on CBS on the thirty first of March in nineteen fifty seven, um, and it had about one hundred and seven million viewers, and it was broadcast live in color from the steep CBS studio 72, which was the only East coast color studio that they had. Hmm. Uh, and she was nominated for an Emmy for her role. So shortly after this in 1957, she releases her debut solo album, the last with the delicate air, which was just like British classic songs. Hmm. It harkened back to like British music hall, essentially. Um, so it was English folk songs, as well as the world war two anthem, London pride, which was written by Noel Coward during the Blitz, which she mm -hmm. had survived. And so she 
wanted to include it on her album. And during this time, she did tons of comedy and television specials on the TV, uh, including with Ed Sullivan. She was on the Ed Sullivan Show multiple times uh, with Dinah Shore and most notably with Carol Burnett, who she continued to work with for a long time during her career. Mm -hmm. Uh, But she does her first appearance with Carol Burnett. Uh, and in 1959, she marries set designer Tony Walton. They end up having one daughter together, Emma Walton Hamilton. But, uh, you know, they divorce about nine years later. So it is what it is in 1968. In 1960, Lerner and Lowe again cast her in a musical. Um, they cast her as Queen Guinevere in Camelot oh. alongside Richard Burton, who played King Arthur. And she just, like, loved this, had a great time. Um, she said that it was a huge undertaking considering the costuming and the literary themes and all of the things that go into Camelot. And mm-hmm. if you've ever seen Camelot, it's a lot. It's pretty intense. Musical. It's a lot. <laughs> um, it premiered at the majestic theater to just kind of adequate reviews, um, which she talks about as hard to, I don't know. They're, they're the reviews that are hard to take seriously because she thinks they were really offset by comparisons to her performances in my fair lady mm. that, Critics were not able to untether the two and they liked My Fair Lady better and that Camelot was kind of unfairly judged because of that. Um, mm-hmm. And that if it had been its own thing without those connotations, it may have done better. But who knows? You never know. Uh, and this performance gets her her second Tony nomination. So right around this time, casting for the film adaption of My Fair Lady begins to happen in 1962. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jay Lerner, of course, hoped for her to reprise the role, but... Warner Brothers studio head Jack Warner says no, she doesn't have the name recognition and casts Audrey Hepburn instead uh, with her singing dubbed by Marnie Nixon, which, you know, is sad. But also Audrey Hepburn is great in it, as we've talked about. Yeah. Um, also, Marnie Nixon is in Mary Poppins. Ah, really? Yeah, she does a bunch of voices in it for oh, singing and stuff. Nice. Primarily, she's the voice of the three geese that sing. Oh, that's funny. Nice. She's in everything. Yeah. She's like one of the most well-working actresses in Hollywood that no one knows about. Yeah. And, you know, Julie Andrews, of course, we've talked about how classy they were during this whole situation. And she reflected on the situation, saying that she understood that her Broadway experiences were part of a very small pond. Um, Her only regret about the situation was that she really wished that she'd been able to record her Broadway performances for posterity Mm. as originating the role. Um, Of course, there's the soundtrack, but she really wished that someone could have seen, like they could have recorded it so you could see what she did Mm -hmm. Um, because she was very proud of her work. And it's hard to imagine now, obviously, her in the role. Of course. And like, I don't know, you don't know. It may not have been successful as it was. If she had done the movie. Yeah. You never know. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Of course, as you talked about, similar time period, uh, Mary Poppins happens for her instead of Mm -hmm. My Fair Lady. Um, And as you said, Walt Disney saw her in Camelot, offered her the role, insisted they would wait for her. You know, he just talked about all that, so Mm -hmm. I don't need to. Well, and thank goodness it did shake out the way that it did because now we have both of these movies. Of course. And also, it kind of established a really great working relationship with Julie Andrews and the Disney company, along with um, other companies that are kind of their subsidiaries. She worked with Muppets a lot. And also, it just Mm -hmm. kind of solidified her icon status as a family icon which is what she really wanted you know Mm -hmm. that was the kind of stardom that she was seeking and so i think that it ended up shaking out perfectly for her in that sense 
<laughs> so of course she gives birth to her daughter uh, and then she receives a call from P.L. Travers, author of the Mary Poppins book series, who says, quote, well, you're much too pretty, of course, but you've got the nose for it. Yes, I did see that. Which is terrible, but I, I, that, I guess, is the way it is. So Disney rented a house for her in Toluca Lake during uh, this filming period so that she and her family could all be together here in Los Angeles. She relied a lot on her instinct for this role. Um, mm. She kind of talks about it as being a very natural thing that she had to work very hard for if that makes sense so Mm -hmm. she did a lot of like conceptualizing and like gave her character very specific features like the walk um the turned out stance um all these like very physical attributes to to match what was going on internally and she said that the production was (laughs) very unrelenting in terms of like physical exertion that she had to do and technical details. But she said that it was a really positive experience for her that like as difficult as it was and as much as they demanded for like those perfection kinds of things, it turned out really great. And she had a really good experience on set, mostly due to the people that were involved in it, Dick Van Dyke, even Walt Disney's involvement and the Sherman Brothers' involvement, it went smoothly for her. Mm-hmm. And of course, it became a huge box office draw, and she was very critically well-received. Um, and of course, it received several nominations for Academy Awards, won five, including Best Actress for her performance. Well, and this is such a funny thing that, like, I don't know why Jack Warner felt so strongly that she couldn't hold a film. Because there already have been actresses that have won either Best Actress or Best Supporting Actress for their first role. Yeah, yeah. In history. Mm-hmm. Like, up to that point, there have already been some. Yeah. And there will be many, many more. I mean, yeah. that's a kind of a common thing for actresses. Yeah, well, and it's like... <sighs> These actresses who are doing their first performance, they're bringing something so fresh that you can't not notice it. Mm -hmm. She's such an iconic person. And of course, you know, throughout the rest of her career, she plays similar roles or roles where you see those qualities Mm -hmm. still. But this is the first time it's seen. Of course, it's like worth awarding. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the funny things um, at the Golden Globes, she won for uh, this role, uh, a Golden Globe as well. Yeah. Um, And she closed her speech by saying, quote, and finally, my thanks to a man who made this wonderful movie and who made all this possible in the first place, Mr. Jack Warner. <laughs> <laughs> because without him, she never would have won Best Actress for Everything. Yeah. <laughs> so moving forward, because her career does not stop here, of course. Um, throughout the 60s, she worked a lot. Um, she started right after this film, after Mary Poppins, she started opposite James Garner in the comedy drama War Film the Americanization of Emily. And she took this role because she was very scared that she'd be typecast as a nanny for the rest of her life. Mm -hmm. So she wanted to do something different. And Bosley Crowther of the New York Times called her role in this, quote, irresistible with a brush of sentiment, uh, remarking on both her comedic and her emotional scenes. Nice. She was nominated for a BAFTA award for this. um, And she also described this as her favorite film that she worked on. Oh, my. A sentiment that was also shared by her co-star, James Garner. Interesting. They both just were really happy with the way it worked out. So the next thing she does, of course, is The Sound of Music in 1965. (laughs) Highest grossing film of the year. Yay. Best picture winner. Lots of great things about this film. We will discuss it very soon. Yeah. Iconic. We'll get to it, you know. Um. She wasn't sure that she wanted to do it. She thought it was a little saccharine before she uh, officially accepted the role. She wasn't sure that it would be as moving or meaningful as she wanted it to be. 
Um, but, and it ended up being a really great role and it fit her very well. It got mixed reviews right away. Um, her performance, of course, was highlighted. Bosley Crowther once again praised her for, quote, her air of radiant vigor, plain Jane wholesomeness, and her ability to make her dialogue as vivid as she makes her songs, hmm. uh, which, you know, is sweet and pretty true. For this role for Maria Von Trapp, she wins her second Golden Globe Award for Best Actress. Um, she was also nominated for her second Academy Award for Best Actress, but she did not win. Uh, and she also was nominated for the BAFTA again. This sets her career on the trajectory of what it is now. She's secured two really prominent leading roles that make her one of the most iconic actresses in history. Mm -hmm. uh, she followed this up with a television appearance uh, for her Emmy-winning special, The Julie Andrews Show, which featured Gene Kelly and the new Christy Minstrels as guests, uh, which aired in November of 1965, and she got her uh, Emmy for that. And then she also stars in the film Hawaii, which was the highest-grossing film of 1966. She also, in 1966, starred in the film Torn Curtain, opposite Paul Newman, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. She has a lot of weird feelings about this film. Hitchcock gave them free reign over the dialogue during production so that they could say whatever they wanted to say, which hmm. she felt was uh, weird. Um, and during one of her press interviews, she expressed some of her unhappiness with her own performance. Uh, which resulted in her getting a very, quote, terse <laughs> letter from Alfred Hitchcock, uh, kind of criticizing her and telling her to get her act together. Uh, and she considers this to be one of the most important lessons in her career about mm. being a professional and about, you know, having control over what she says and the narrative that she's portraying. And I mean, when you think of Julie Andrews, you think of a person who is well-spoken and who is a class act on all fronts. Um, and I think this is part of how she learned some of that. Following this, <laughs> she plays Millie in Thoroughly Modern Millie yeah. in 1967. Um, and she really was grateful for this role. She considered it to be a really good distraction and allowed her to be, quote, something of a clown. Um, because her stepfather did die shortly before she began filming this. And as I mentioned, she had a very tumultuous relationship with him. Um, but he was the one who paid for all of her lessons and helped her get started. And he and her mother were the artists in the family. And mm -hmm. so it was just a very complicated time for her. And she was so glad to have this light uh, film full of brevity and, you know, vigor that she could be working on instead of focusing on those things. It was a box office success. Um, she was considered a leading lady, uh, deliciously spirited and dry. Uh, and of course, it's nominated for seven Academy Awards. And she also won another Golden Globe for her performance in this. Both of these films, Thoroughly Modern Millie and Torn Curtain, were the biggest and second biggest hits that Universal Pictures had. Um, so she is like kind of becoming their go-to for films at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, and in 1969, uh, shortly after this, she marries director Blake Edwards, who she remained married to for 41 years until his death in 2010. Yeah. She became stepmother to his two children of the time, Jennifer and Jeffrey. Um, and also in the 70s, the two of them together adopted two different Vietnamese daughters, Amy and Joanna. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After this, she appeared in a couple flops, unfortunately. She was in the film Star, uh, which was a biopic of Gertrude Lawrence, and then the film Darling Lily, which co-starred Rock Hudson and was directed by Blake Edwards, her husband. She said that it was, you know, a tricky time, but Darling Lily got decently good reviews. It did win Best Song at the 43rd Academy Awards, but she felt that 
these films suffered because she had just gone through a divorce and she was feeling so insecure about herself and her career and her ability to learn choreography and that this insecurity really got the best of her. And in her more recent interviews, when she talks about things that she regrets or things that she considers to be her weaknesses, she always talks about this specific time period in her life, this really deep time of insecurity and not feeling confident in her abilities or her talent, um, hmm. which is crazy after having two of the greatest films in American history. Um, well, I mean, I'm sure that that gives you a lot of second guessing. Throughout the 70s, she continued to work in television. Um, she shared the spotlight with uh, Harry Belafonte for NBC TV special, An Evening with Julie Andrews and Harry Belafonte. Um, <laughs> in 1971, she was the main guest of honor for the grand opening special of Walt Disney World. Uh, and she has had a very like deep connection with Walt Disney World and Walt Disneyland. She's always been invited to important ceremonies, that kind of thing. She's hmm. kind of the like go-to person for that, yeah. um, which is funny. Uh, and she and Carol Burnett headlined a CBS special, Julie and Carol at Lincoln Center. Yeah. Just another one of her many uh, collaborations with her. I love that they have a good relationship hmm. because Carol Burnett is one of my favorite people in all of Hollywood, and she seems so different to me than Julie Andrews. I don't know. They feel like kindred spirits to me. Well, kindred spirits, but different people. Like, and I love that they can complement each other so well. Like, I've seen some of their performances even before doing all of this, and like they go so well together because. Julie Andrews is such classiness and Carol Burnett is such silliness and it just works out really perfectly. Mm -hmm. From 72 to 73, she had her own television variety series, The Julie Andrews Hour on ABC, which won seven Emmy Awards, but was canceled after one season. Hmm. Weird. Crazy. Um, and then she, of course, had association with ABC, so she continued to do different headlining variety specials um, and guest starred on The Muppet Show in 1977. Uh, and again, on another uh, CBS television special with them. So the next kind of important moment in her career is she books the role uh, of Victoria Grant in the film Victor Victoria in 1982, which reunited her with James Garner, who she worked with previously. Hmm. She got a Golden Globe for this performance, um, and she got a nomination for the Academy Awards in 1982 for Best Actress, which was her third Oscar nomination. That same year, she uh, starred in an ABC Christmas special, which won five Emmy Awards, and uh, also was reunited with Carol Burnett shortly afterwards for another special. So all of these things are just compounding on one another. She's becoming known as the go-to person for television specials, Christmas specials, holiday specials, whatever. Uh, in 1991, she's named a Disney legend. And then in the summer of 1992, she stars in her very first television sitcom, which was a very short-lived sitcom named Julie, which only had seven episodes, unfortunately. Hmm. And it centered around her, but it didn't take off hmm. for who knows why. I mean, sounds cute to me. And this I thought was so sweet. As we all know, she plays the Cockney flower seller in My Fair Lady. And in 1992, she had an orange salmon pink rose named after her at London's Chelsea Flower Show. She said that she was ever so flattered, and she gave a portion of the sales to uh, charity, of course, for the Julie Andrews Rose. Oh, cute. Um, in 1995, she starred in the stage musical version of the film that she had just recently been nominated for, Victor Victoria. So this is very important because it was her first Broadway appearance in... 35 years 
as you may or may not realize, she does not have a Tony Award. Mm -hmm. She has everything else, but not the Tony. And she is a Broadway baby. She's a stage baby. She is a theater kid through and through, but she doesn't have that Tony, which is just mind-blowing to everyone. So it opens on Broadway in uh, 1995 on October 25th at the Marquee Theater, uh, and then afterwards goes on a world tour. Um, She did get a nomination for the Tonys from this performance, but she declined because she felt that the entire production was snubbed because she was the only person out of the entire production that got a nomination, and she felt like it was a pity nomination, not due to her specific standout work, Mm. and that if it was due to her standout work, the other people would have had to be nominated alongside her, and they weren't. Mm -hmm. Um, So she declined and obviously didn't win anything. Sadly, she was forced to quit this stage production towards the end of the Broadway run in 1997 because she developed a hoarseness in her voice. This, of course, is the most tragic time of her life. Uh, She goes under surgery at New York's Mount Sinai Hospital to remove non-cancerous nodules from her throat, which, you know, are a thing a lot of people who are vocalists are concerned about. Later, she states that the hoarseness was due to muscular striation that happens on the vocal cords um, and that it was a result from the strain of singing during Victor Victoria. Hmm. Um, Hard to know, of course. Um, Unfortunately and tragically, she came out of the surgery with permanent damage that destroyed the purity of her singing voice and made her speaking voice very raspy. Um, In 1999, she filed a malpractice suit against the doctors at Mount Sinai Hospital who had operated on her throat because originally the doctors assured her that she would regain her voice within six weeks. Um, Mm. But her stepdaughter talks about how as of 1999, it had been two years and her singing voice hadn't returned at all. Mm. Um, The lawsuit was settled in September of 2000 for an undisclosed amount, um, but she has never recovered she's like very devastated by this of course her famous four octave soprano was reduced to a fragile alto um which really changed what she could do and what kind of role she was considered for and also it eliminated a lot of her like specials that she wanted to do she did go under surgery several times after this um with dr stephen m zydels who was the director of massachusetts general hospital uh he operated on her four different times and was able to improve her speaking voice but unable to restore her singing voice hmm. So, you know, going forward, in 2000, she received Kennedy Center honors, um, and she was reunited for her Sound of Music co-star, Christopher Plummer, for a live television performance of On Golden Pond, uh, an adaption of the play. Hmm. And then, in 2001, she takes on her greatest role to date. She stars in the film The Princess Diaries, Hmm. which is her first Disney film since Mary Poppins, uh, as Queen Clarice Marie Vinaldi. And, of course, she reprises the role in The Princess Diaries 2, The Royal Engagement. So in this sequel, The Princess Diaries 2, it was her first time singing since she had her throat surgery. Hmm. Um, If you recall, she sings the song, Your Crowning Glory, a really sweet, cute duet with Raven Simone, uh, which, of course, was set in a very limited range of an octave to accommodate her voice as it recovered. The film's music supervisor, Don Soler, recalled that Andrew's, quote, Nailed the song on the first take. When I looked around, I saw the grips with tears in their eyes, Hmm. which is just so sweet. I mean, it had been several years since she had sung anything, and this Mm -hmm. was her first time back. Um, And it's really sad. I remember when I saw this movie and my parents saw it with me that they 
were just so sad to hear her voice at that point. Um, just mm. very, very tragic. But, you know, she kind of came back to it. She kept her relationship with Disney, of course. She appears as a nanny in two different television films based on the Eloise books, Eloise at the Plaza and Eloise at Christmas Time, uh, which she was nominated for an Emmy Award for. Oh, boy. Well-deserved. One of the greatest films of all time. She also, that year, 2003, made her debut as a theater director, directing a revival of The Boyfriend, huh. her very first Broadway production, which is really exciting for her. Um just a very cool, you know, everything comes back around. So during this time, she does several other different films, doing voice acting mostly. Um, she's honored with Lifetime Achievement from the Screen Actors Guild. Um, she's, you know, given other accolades from all kinds of different people during this time. She does different reviews. So there is a, a revive. Oh, of course, there is the new production of Mary Poppins on the West End, uh, the musical, the first time that the musical was done on stage. She was a part of the original cast for that in that she was a part of the original production in the sense that she came to the original production. And after it was done, she did a little Q&A and talked about the making of Mary Poppins, the role, what it meant to her uh, and how she was excited for this new Broadway West End production of Mary Poppins as it was. Mm. Nice. Um, which is really sweet that she was very supportive of the role and the people involved in that production. She also, from July until August of 2008, she hosted Julie Andrews' The Gift of Music, which was a short tour of the United States, where she sang various Rodgers and Hammerstein songs and symphonized with her recently published book, Simeon's Gift. Of course, she also has written a couple different autobiographies and children's books. She's very involved in the children's literary world as well. Um, and continue to narrate books, narrate TV shows, that kind of thing. In February 2011, she received a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award with her daughter, Emma, uh, for Best Spoken Word Album for Children uh, at the 53rd Grammy Awards. Um, and I thought this was sweet. Uh, she declined a cameo appearance in Mary Poppins Returns. Uh, they did offer it to her and want her to be involved in it, but she really believed that she would steal the limelight uh, from Emily Blunt, and she believed that this movie was for her and that she deserved to be the star and not have people thinking about Julie Andrews. Mm -hmm. So she declined and stayed away from it, which I think is very impressive. But I felt like people still really thought about her because oh, she 100%. wasn't in it. And they were like, well, why wasn't she in it? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I agree. And it, it's funny because that movie has Dick Van Dyke in it too as like yeah. a little cameo. So, you know, who knows whether that was helpful or not. But I appreciate the women supporting women sentiment uh and uh currently she narrates bridgerton if you watch bridgerton mm. so that's kind of where her career has ended her up at anyways uh that's what i have to share today about julie andrews um throughout her life she has remained optimistic and just truly kind and pleasant she is an easy person to work with um, she is a sunny person to work with, which is just amazing that you could be in the industry for this long and continue to be successful and continue to be someone that people want to work with and people love. So yeah, good for her. Very proud of her. Very excited for her. Yay. A great one through and through. Through and through. And with that, we thank the Academy. At yeah. the end of every episode, we like to thank the Academy for things related to these films, the people, the episode that we're discussing currently. I will go first. 
I would like to thank the Academy for taking a chance on some newcomers. Yeah. You got to do it at some point. I know. Everybody has to have their first film someday. <laughs> and uh, Walt Disney made a big risk in casting Dick Van Dyke. And I mean, it was calculated, obviously. <laughs> there is some popularity. There is some name recognition for both of them. But, you know... You never know if somebody is going to translate to film. You never know if people are going to be willing to pay for them. Right. Because, like, people can now see people for free on their television. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. They can see Dick Van Dyke for free every week <laughs> on their television. Why pay for what you could get for free? But it paid off in the end, big time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So thanks for that. Mm-hmm. I would like to thank the Academy for yet another one-man Walt Disney show. Yeah. <laughs> this time, the story of Mary Poppins. In Julie Andrews' dressing room. <laughs> the things I would do to be a fly on the wall and be able to see these performances. I love that he is a man that is not afraid. It makes me think that his kids must have had a lot of fun with him. I mm -hmm. bet he acted stuff out oh, all I'm the sure. time for them. I love him. I wish that I had been alive during this time just so that maybe Walt Disney could have pitched something to me. Ah, uh, yes, yes. He would have done that. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to know what that would be like. I would like to thank the Academy for child actors. Hmm. Uh, Mary Poppins had two very, very fun child actors, <laughs> um, Karen Dotris and Matthew Garber. And they were so good in this film. And I would like... As a kid, I liked this film a lot and liked both of them in it mm. a lot. But as an adult watching it, I'm just like so impressed with child actors who are actually good <laughs> because not all of them can do it, especially yeah. since I've worked with many child actors. Yeah. Like there are so many who cannot do it. <laughs> And you kind of think like, oh, it should be easy for a child actor because... They don't think about it. They just yeah, do it. Yeah, they can just be in the moment so much more than an adult can. Like, they don't have all these things going, like, insecurities and, like, all of that going through their head like adults do. But yeah. some of them just can't. But these two kids <laughs> could. And they were great. So thanks for child actors. <laughs> And finally, I would like to thank the Academy for family-friendly movies that survived the disintegration of the code. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we don't like the code. No, so of course down not. with the code. Down with the code. But also, just because anything can be made doesn't mean something won't be made. It's... It's called knowing your audience. Yeah. Different audiences need different things. And I love a family movie. I love a, a movie that everyone can enjoy. I also like a specific movie or a tough movie. But mm -hmm. also, it's really important to be able to have these family movies. And Disney was silly to worry about it because they're the biggest corporation in the world. <laughs> I mean, that's not true. but One of them. <laughs> and with that, we leave you. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks. And join us next week when more Julie we Andrews. talk all about her again <laughs> and the 38th Academy Awards and the Best Picture winner, The Sound of Music. Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinger.
Join us next week on Thank the Academy.